What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast at FilmmakerU.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Each week, we bring you interviews with film professionals to explore the craft of filmmaking, and of course, this week is no different. I'm interviewing Gordita Chronicles production designer, Amy Lee Wheeler. We talked about how the production design happened in the early days of the pandemic and how a tropical storm got in the way of building the sets, requiring unique workarounds to meet the deadlines. Now, of course, if you like this interview, you definitely want to check out FilmmakerU.com's courses, where we bring in the best of the industry to teach you the craft and show you their secrets. These industry experts include Eric Whip, colorist for Mad Max Fury Road, three-time Oscar-winning VFX supervisor Rob Legato, and award-winning doc producer and editor Sam Polder, among many others. Of course, use the code THECUTTINGROOM, all one word, to get 10% off when you buy a course at FilmmakerU.com. With all that said, let's hear what Amy's experience was like on Gordita Chronicles. We were going to talk about Gordita Chronicles, but I do have one. When I was going through your IMDb, I have one thing I really want to ask you about. Okay. And that is the Three Stooges as a Three Stooges fan. <laughs> yeah, that was a great what, one. Yeah. What was it like getting involved with that? Like, what were your responsibilities on that? How did how did that come about? Um, I've done multiple films with the Farley brothers since way back, uh, way, way, way back. <laughs> I think the Heartbreak Kid maybe was one of the first movies I did with them. So um, I was the art director, which means that I was in charge of all the builds. And that show in particular, that movie was really special because it was it was so heavy on stunts, um, obviously, because every single, ep- like every scene basically had mm-hmm. a gag and a stunt. So we had a huge um, stunt crew. And I personally on that, project was pretty much working with them daily because every single thing we had to build or design we had to do duplicates of and make things out of foam or or rubber or you know there were all kinds of things ladders and and like little props but there were also entire sides of of a wall or something that needed to be constructed knowing that someone would get flung into it. So (laughs) it was actually, it was actually a lot of fun and it was also very inventive. You know, we had a table that had to, I had to do some 3d modeling to figure out how to make this table flip because it it flips and the nun is like strapped onto it. Okay. And there were all kinds of little gags that we had to kind of go, how, how are we going to do that? Um, And that's actually when I think a show is the most fun, any movie. But that one in particular, I think just as a fan, as a kid, like that kind of slapstick mm-hmm. comedy, we just don't see much anymore. So um, I-, I had a blast on that one. Uh, we shot that in Atlanta. Um, I think that was back in like 2010, 2011, yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. Did you did you look back at any of the older stuff, like things like that table yeah. spinning and stuff? They used to have like did oh, you yeah. find old ways of doing it or anything like that uh, yeah we had uh we definitely watched i watched all of i i'm sure i've seen all of the three stooges movies now um or or episodes or whatever um we had like collections of dvds in the art department to watch um there were quite a few uh everything we wanted to do had to be sort of a practical gag so we weren't doing you know visual effects Mm-hmm. So you kind of had to, you know, when you're doing something like the table that spins, something like that, 
you not only have to figure out how to spin, but you have to make it stop. So there were, um, there was an effects team that would also sit and work. So we would have, um, you know, a few of us would all sit down and we kind of go, okay, if we do this, then we can do this. And everybody collaborated. We brought all mm -hmm. of our ideas together. Um, we built like the schoolhouse. Um, there, there were certain things like that. We just built the whole thing um, on the property we were shooting at so that we could modify and manipulate all of it. Um, the doors, the windows, things that needed to happen around the ladder and then falling off the roof. And there was like a whole bell tower gag. So the bell had to be made out of foam, multiple bells. They all had to be identical. Like there was just so many different things that had to happen. Um, that it, it was a lot of fun. It was a little tedious because you, but you'd end up with like six of everything. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so those are, those are fun. And it's kind of rare. I mean, you, you can get into those movies like the fast and furious and those big kind of movies where you got a lot of stunts that relate to machinery, like cars mm -hmm. and things that blow up. Um, when you are doing gags that are physical, um, like action sequences and stuff, it's, uh, you're more concerned about the actors. So it becomes a little more, it becomes more intimate. Well, yeah. I'll jump to Gordita Chronicles. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you get involved with this project? Um, I am, I'm friends with one of the producers who was also one of our directors, uh, Randall Winston. I worked with on Grace and Frankie, and we also did, uh, we had done a couple projects even before that. So we've known each other for years. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what the situation was on the ground in Puerto Rico or why they, um, I think they were trying to get someone local and they were running out of time. And then he thought of me and, you know, knowing that there'd be a lot of quick thinking on your feet, you know, you, you need to do something and come up with something quick. Mm -hmm. And I've always been really good at that. So I think for him, he thought the, I was the perfect person. So, um, you know, a couple of people, made phone calls and they called me and I, I actually had just wrapped something. So it was actually perfect timing. Um, and I was on a plane within a week and was in Puerto Rico before we were even, before we'd even picked, um, the stage space, which was like a big warehouse. So I kind of got to be on the ground right away to like help find even the office space and things like that, which I don't normally we're not always involved in. So it was kind of great to be able to figure out logistically where we would land mm -hmm. and uh, run the show. Yeah. What, uh, what were, cause you did this during COVID. So what were some of the challenges that uh, you um, faced? Yeah. I mean, we knew that, you know, that we would still, Puerto Rico had at the time uh, until about two weeks after we got there, they finally lifted the travel ban for tourism but they had really kind of locked the entire island down and minimized people coming in and out. So we were aware they made it, um, they allowed us to come in for filming and then they opened everything up for tourism, but you had to be vaccinated to even get there. So it meant all of our crew in order to, to hire anyone, they had to be vaccinated. Um, and there were just going to be a lot more precautions. We knew that when it came to just how we interact um, with with people and vendors. And most of us had been working for um, six months to a year. So we had sort of figured out the protocols and the testing. There's like, mm -hmm. you know, and we're still doing um, 
a lot of testing and stuff in our in our industry and wearing the PPE. Um, but with that, I also knew we were on an island, and whenever you are shooting on an island, there's always going to be um, you, you're going to need extra time to get materials. You're going to need extra planning. Um, and then the fact that everybody's got a supply chain issue, you know, it just added to it. So we had a lot of things that kind of came up uh, little by little. We were also in the middle of hurricane season. Luckily, we had a um, very mild, you know, we had a few tropical storms, but um, no, no big hurricanes, which was lovely. But um, but still, I mean, that means power outages and um, like sporadically, randomly all the time. Um, and so you just sort of have to roll with it. You have to come up with different ways to, to get things done. Um, you know, always having generators handy and always having, you know, water available and making sure that everybody's prepared because anything could happen at any moment. <laughs> so, I mean, and some of that is fun, you know, and there's, yeah. um, if you get the right crew, I think whenever you're doing a job like that, um, the people who are attracted to a job like that, who say yes, like construction crew and the set deck crew, they're usually people who are somewhat adventure minded, you know, and even my art director, I, I even asked him, you want an adventure? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what it is. You know, you go to a place and it's like, you know, you're in a city, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to always get everything because there were all of these different factors. You know, it wasn't just the pandemic. It was just everything going on for everyone. Cause you know, the, I feel like almost everyone who works through COVID is dealing with all kinds of supply chain issues. And, um, a lot of those things that we use in our industry are not available. They stopped mm -hmm. making them or you can't get them. And, so you just have to figure it out. <laughs> well, how do you, in that situation, like I'm thinking like you had so many things working against you. You have like hurricanes, power outages because of the hurricanes, <laughs> lack of supply change. And I feel like the film industry is very much like, here's your deadline. Uh -huh. You got to meet it. Like it's not, it's very rare that I hear yeah. like a film being like, okay, we'll push it. <laughs> so how did you meet your deadline with all the roadblocks? Yeah. I was really grateful that I got a construction crew. Um, I, I ended up bringing a crew because we, uh, we just couldn't find enough local crew. Um, there were too many other projects. There was another a large film going on on the island that had taken a lot of the local crew. Um, and they were already there before us. So that's all good. They get that. Mm -hmm. um, so I was lucky enough to have people that came in who were the same, like I said, adventure minded people who are also goal driven. Like we know when the deadline is, it's like, okay, we have six weeks to get this, like a lot of scenery built. And part of the, you know, the guys had to go around. There's only a couple of places to get lumber, you know, and we're not the only people on the Island building things. I mean, there are people <laughs> actually building like construction, you know? Yeah. So they had to go and, you know, make friends. And, and that was also different because it's a different culture too. And, you know, as outsiders coming in, you know, there's not necessarily, it's not all about money in, 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 on that Island or really just anywhere in the world, you'll find sometimes you show up and it doesn't necessarily matter that you're there to spend a lot of money. 
Like they want to make sure that everybody gets their fair share. So it was really about kind of bartering and making deals and going around and making sure that we had enough wood coming in from three different suppliers and, um, and just all the different materials. I mean, you really had to just go around and sort of like trade for things and, and make friends. And, and it was wonderful in the end because it became sort of a challenge. Like everybody, it's like cannonball run. Everybody's like, can we get this done? You know, (laughs) (laughs) can we? And and it becomes like this, this feat. And, Mm -hmm. um, the guys worked 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and it was hot and, you know, but everyone was running around doing, doing everything. So, uh, it just became uh, somehow you get it done, but it became like a goal and it really bonded everybody to the local crew that we did get, um, really bonded with our, with our crew, uh, quickly because we all had this kind of shared goal and it's sort of like erecting a house. I would assume it's a little Amish, like in that sense of like, Mm -hmm. you know, community, you all kind of band together and we're like, okay, we can get this done. Now you're nominated for an Emmy. And I, I was for, okay. yes. Yeah. For Grace and Frankie, I was. Okay. I thought you were for this as well. Cause I was going to ask you <laughs> if you, is there a particular piece that you're incredibly proud of for this? Oh, yes. I mean, um, there's, I mean, I, I'm like, which particular, I do love the sets. I think the apartment and the, um, the office sets are part of it. The thing I like about it is that they, we had to change a lot of the design because of materials and things we couldn't Mm -hmm. get on the Island. Um, and yet it still came out a lot like what I wanted. It Mm -hmm. just, we just had to modify a few things and only I'm really going to know that other than like my team might know that we had to do quite a bit of engineering for the office set. Um, the, the father, the whole premise of the show is that the family moves from the Dominican to Miami in 1985, which they really did. Mm-hmm. The real life story, the father worked for Eastern Airlines. We have an airline that's fictitious called Starboard Airlines. And um, the father becomes the Latin American uh, marketing director, which he really was for all of Latin America to broaden basically their, their scope. And so to make the headquarters work, I needed to have a lot of glass, like floor to ceiling, these big glass panels. And, mm-hmm. um, and what we realized that, you know, things like that, we couldn't get the glass tempered on the Island. They didn't have any ovens long enough, like deep enough. Oh, interesting. So all 38 pieces of glass had to be oh. cut <laughs> and then crated and then sent to Miami on a barge, which took a week. Then it had to be tempered in Miami and then sent back on a barge back to Puerto Rico, hopefully not breaking. And then we had to figure out how to gimbal them, which is something we do in our industry so that they can adjust so that we don't see the camera crew and reflections. So, but the hardware you normally use for that wasn't available, the type of aluminum and metal. So we ended up having to get like uh, these channels that they make doors out of metal doors, like uh, commercial yeah. doors and modify them like channels and put the glass. And I mean, there were so many different little things that no one's ever going to notice or see, but we, you know, had to figure out 
And to me, that that makes me proud. Also, it's just a beautiful set. It kind of it it's it's fun. It has a little '80s flair in like lighting and mm-hmm. um, the way that the ceiling kind of floats and um, certain aspects of it. But uh, there's also just the hidden stuff, the stuff we had to go through that we didn't expect. Um, and you just had to think outside the box a lot on the show. But it's also fun. I mean, 1985. You know, you get to kind of play with some of the funny, odd things that were really trendy in design mm-hmm. at the time. <laughs> well, as someone who just put in a floor to ceiling mirror somewhere, the stress is moving it from location A to B. So yeah. yeah. What did any of them break on the way, the glass, or did you uh, like we succeed? Did have two pieces. I think we had two pieces chip. I think we ended up doing 40 um sheets and we needed 38. And the problem was that they weren't all the same size. Um, mm-hmm. We tried to make them as uniform as possible. So um, I know we ended up working it out. Th- those kind of things, sometimes something happens and somebody fixes it and um, it all worked out. So I don't really, I don't know the absolute <laughs> details of that, but um, you know, like, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, that that's always stressful in itself, just kind of getting the glass in and out. That's why you, you let the the glass guys do it with those big suction things. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Or even with a mirror, you know, but. Yeah. Um, oh, we yeah, let them I mean, do it. It's just the idea of it traveling. I'm like, it's yeah. gonna, they're going to hit a pothole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just figure like that's going a long way. Like just yeah. the fact that we, it was, part of me was like, wait, we're not buying the glass in Miami. Like the fact that we got the glass there, that was part of the deal. Again, that's a bartering thing. It's like, okay, yeah. we have, we're going to get the glass from the local vendor, but then we have to send it away and bring it back um, instead of getting it from someone else and just having it shipped direct. And that that's okay. Like that was part of the process to make sure that we still had that deal with the local people so that we still got everything we needed. Um, you know, and it's not much of a sacrifice. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it's a little bit of time, which we didn't really have, but um, we made it work still. <laughs> now you talked about 80s design and getting to play with 80s design. Uh, mm-hmm. Was there a particular like movement? Like I think about the Memphis group uh, movement in the 80s or, you know, like in the 70s, we have this back to nature sort of movement. Right. Uh, is there like a particular movement that you sort of followed? Did you mix it up? How did you approach that? Didn't want to, um, from the very beginning, when I talked to the the producers, you know, the show is based on Claudia Forsteri's like life. And mm-hmm. um, when I talked to her and uh, Brigitte, which uh, Brigitte is our, Leibowitz is our, um, was our showrunner. And I, we knew that the eighties wasn't going to be a joke. We didn't mm-hmm. want it to be the joke. So we wanted everything to feel very real and grounded in, in reality um and the memphis movement things like that they're very um stylized and they're iconic but they're also sort of flashy Mm -hmm. they would fit you know if you had a record producer or someone that would fit like their lifestyle but for the average person it didn't make a lot of sense and we Mm -hmm. also had um you know the storyline this family has money in the dominican they had a um they had a lot of a home they had uh, they had a staff. They they actually yeah. had means. And then when they moved to Miami and realized how expensive the taxes are that they've never had to pay and the cost of living, um, they end up in an apartment. 
and uh, they're, they're too proud to ask for, for help. So they just decide to do it on their own. And so, you know, they're in a, a little two bedroom apartment. We needed to make sure that that felt like Hialeah, which was the mm-hmm. neighborhood that they had moved into, which had, um, you know, and I did a lot of research into that area and they just had a very heavily, there was a little mid-century happening mm-hmm. in the area, but it had been let go. So heavy texture and age. Um, and we wanted to show the gritty side of the world, because a lot of times when you look at the eighties, you don't see the grit, you see all of the bright hyper colors and the, you know, the iconic shapes and things, which mm-hmm. I knew would be in the costume. I knew that would be in the the makeup and in the school where things are a little brighter. Um, but we wanted everything to feel very real. So for us, it was more of a focus on, um, I, I was pulling people's home photos, like their own photo albums and like everyone's personal stuff to really gather um, research. And what I realized, I mean, most of us don't have a place that's all one decade or one era. Um, so we really mixed things. We did a lot of plants because that's very 80s, 70s and 80s. But we did yeah. a mixture of of some traditional 70s furniture um, like the, the dining room set was a little older and, um, some seventies and eighties upholstery, um, a few things that are kind of, that have a little eighties flair, but we try to mix things up, especially in their home so that it felt more real. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why there's a lot of Brown and it's sort of funny because when you really look at people's photos of their homes, the average person's home in the eighties had a lot of Brown. <laughs> and I think it's like sort of funny that you just don't really think of the eighties that way, but, um, it felt, it felt very real. And so that was more our focus. And even with the school, um, a big challenge for me at the very beginning was to talk to the DP and find out if he would be okay with me putting ceilings everywhere, which, is something mm-hmm. a DP doesn't, they don't really, <laughs> they don't love them. You mean where um, my lights are going to go? <laughs> right. They don't, yeah. In television, a lot of times they don't, but he came out of film and I'd seen some of his work. Um, and so work is very naturally lit. And so I had a feeling and luckily, like when I brought it up, he was like, yeah, bring it, bring it. I love it. Um, which was, I think makes all the difference. Um, the apartment has popcorn ceilings, and they're not very, they're not super high. I think I put them at like nine feet or something. So you could really see them and, and feel that kind of confinement. So it doesn't feel grand. Yeah. And I feel like when you, sometimes in television, you don't see the ceiling because it's not there, but that absence um, makes it feel a little bit more like it's on a stage. Yeah. And so um, the school, we really, we took a lot of reference from the breakfast club and a lot of John Hughes movies, actually. Um, We overall, even though John Hughes movies were, you know, predominantly like uh, Chicago suburbs and we were in Miami, uh, but there was a sort of, there was a very unflashy, average kind of mm-hmm. quality to all of the locations in his movies. And there was something that we really liked about that. Plus there was a pastel kind of overall palette that we took on that is sort of present in all of them as well. Um, but the school we really loved and we didn't have that much. I mean, we only had so much space. So putting the drop ceiling and adding some staircases and putting the lockers in and everything, 
we did really try to emulate some of the hallway scenes from the breakfast club. We kind of liked having that depth and having the, the level changes and stuff. Um, and being able to put the real ceilings in with the real lighting, it made a whole different, I, I think it made a difference because a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, I've been told by many people actually that have watched it, that they thought it was all done on location. Oh, they I assumed, totally thought it was location. They, they okay. shot, <laughs> yeah. Don't... And the, like the school itself, I mean, a big part of that, they'd shot the pilot in Los Angeles and I didn't do the pilot. Um, And I know the designer of the pilot and I was trying to stay very true to some of what was established. Now, luckily the pilot really storyline wise doesn't carry into the rest of the series because the family's staying in a a motel that they don't, they are only there during the first episode. Um, But the school itself, they, they did the typical California school, the Southern California school where there's like an outdoor cafeteria. And that's not something you're going to find. It's not impossible to find that in Miami, but it would be very different. And because yeah. of the moisture and the, the rainstorms and stuff, it's a very different thing. But uh, the producers really loved the depth of it. They liked the how it, it felt like it was outside. So that was like one of the things that I knew I needed to keep. And mm-hmm. um, there was no way we were going to find that. Uh, on location in Puerto Rico and be able to successfully shoot regularly because of the amount of, of rain and weather and unpredictability. So I knew I was building it on stage. Um, and I, but I did need to find a school to match. Um, and we looked and looked and I, I was very discouraged after a while because I didn't find anything. And then the location manager, she's, she's, I don't know why she was like, you know, there's a private school and she takes me to it and it was the most beautiful architecture. I was, <laughs> I, I mean, when she pulled up to it, I was like, it was this mid-century school that was just stunning. And I was like, something about this feels very familiar. And she said, do you know the architect Henry Klum? And I'm like, oh my God. And we started going around and seeing there's some signature elements of his that were around the school. And it's, not something that they advertise because they he has other things on the island that people go see like tourists mm-hmm. go see and that's not one of them they don't want tourists at the school but the just to like see his work in person and then to kind of go yeah this actually fits what we need we needed all these big overhangs so when we built the the cafeteria on stage I was able to incorporate a lot of the elements that he put in the real school that we shot at maybe twice. I think we did like two scenes at the location. Um, but I like it because I've, I, I'm very proud that I feel like it does feel like it's outdoors. The mm-hmm. cafeteria does feel like it's outside and we only have one backing, but we had a lot of real palm trees and real greens in there. And um, the DP Sunel brought in the sun, you know, in a way that, uh, was very successful, I think. And, um, we actually put grow lights up so that we didn't Mm -hmm. have to pull the big palm trees out of the stage. Um, more than like we pulled them out every couple weeks, but we didn't have to do it every day. Um, so we put up lights and yeah. So I think that was successful. It was definitely an undertaking too, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they, they thought it was a little strange. They're like, you want to 
leave the plants on stage and i'm like <laughs> we have these big palm trees i was like yeah, yeah we don't really have a chance you know a choice so yeah it was interesting you mentioned clume is there a particular architecture style that you you like personally um i i mean i love the mid-century style um but no i i think no i think i'm just an architecture geek in in mm -hmm. in all in all ways i mean because i i love I love Gaudi and like some of the fl flamboyant Spanish stuff that you can find in Barcelona. And, um, but I also, I mean, I lived in a craftsman home for many, many years and love craftsman homes. And so I just, in architecture, I think that it's all, it all has its place and I, I find it all fascinating. Um, in that particular situation, it was, um, it was just so interesting to see the schools were very different than that. That school stood out. Mm. It was a completely different architecture than I'd seen on the island. And it really fit what I was trying to find because um, I needed to have basically an outdoor cafeteria that had an overhang. Yeah. <laughs> and which, it, you know, and, and the way that Southern Californian schools tend to have. Um, but I needed it to feel like it, it belonged in Miami. So to me, that mid-century vibe kind of worked for that. You know, it's it's not mm -hmm. going to be something you see in an LA school. It's um, but it it worked for for Miami. So now I have a, this is this is totally an aside. But if you're ever able to go to Nicaragua, there is a, a town I can't remember the name of it off my top of my head. But because like in the 1500s spain took it over and then like mm -hmm. france took it over for a little while germany took it over and they would each build their architecture styles from that era nice. and so like you walk down one street and it's like it's paris and then the next street oh. over it's like it's spain and it's like the next street over it's like germany it's just so weird but it's so oh, cool. gorgeous it's just one oh, of the, it's cool. so beautiful yeah i'll uh, have to put that on my list because i was kind of a geek when it comes to i mean when i travel like i definitely the architecture is one of the top things i yeah sort of look for and geek out <laughs> i love it <laughs> one of the things that i was wondering is you know because they're coming um from the dominican republic I like when I, I like friends that I've grown up with who immigrated to Canada, you know, depending on the family, some families would really hold on to their roots and do things in their apartments or their houses based on where they were from. Others would try to assimilate and almost like hide their identity. So did you talk to the, um, to the producers and directors and figure out a way to sort of make that work? Like what was the family's yeah. approach, I guess? From yeah, I mean, there was definitely pride, um, mm -hmm. and and that comes through in even um, even the storylines. Uh, there's a lot of pride. Like Adela, right away, has to deal with her driving. Um, she's very proud that she's a wild Dominican driver, yeah. um, but that doesn't work in the new place, and and so there's a, an adjustment for everyone in the family for old and new, but there's still a pride. Um, and I knew that that was going to be very important. So in their home, we had discussed early on, um, how much stuff they would have moved. Um, the cost of actually having the stuff, uh, shipped was pretty high. So there were only some key pieces that she and her real family, um, that they traveled with, uh, 
a couple pieces of furniture. Um, there was definitely a couple of very special um, rattan chairs that um, that her mother had that are they, actually they were pain and they were just beautiful. And I couldn't find, I only found them on the island uh, in a hotel and they wouldn't let us borrow them. <laughs> um, but though we got something similar, but uh, there were a few things like that that were sentimental. There were um, the dolls. There's these um, beautiful... Mm -hmm. If if you're watching the show, there are, I think there are three or four of them in the living room. Uh, they're various um, porcelain dolls. There are a couple of them. They don't really have faces. They're these women that are in these beautiful dresses. Um, they have these hats, uh, but they have, and everyone kind of calls them the faceless doll. Um, but they're a very specific Dominican cultural um, item and there's something that pretty much every household had so it was important mm -hmm. that we get a couple of those um so we made sure that a few things like that definitely like made the travel and then everything else was um things that we figured they picked up inexpensively secondhand whether they had distant relatives or whether they picked it up at thrift stores um, we figured that a lot of the furniture that they would have would be purchased but um it was definitely pride there was definitely uh, Dominican elements like in the car, especially because of Adela's um, that being a big part of the storyline. There's also an entire uh, episode where they talk about um, where there's a, a domino tournament played in the in the courtyard. Mm -hmm. And um, the courtyard was another one of those things that we had to that we didn't plan to build um, initially, but it wasn't something we were going to be able to find on location that needed, it needed to be a courtyard that had like a kind of typical Southern California, again, where there's like a pool and the apartments surround that area. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that existed there. So um, we definitely ended up building that. And um, there were certain things like the domino area and that were very Dominican. And um, we wanted to make sure that we were including those cultural elements there. Now I have one last question for you. What would you say, and I do this for everyone I interview, is your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Guilty pleasure. Um, you know, I watch a lot of old films. Um, I mean, but like silly. I like to laugh. So, I mean, I'll watch movies like Fletch like over yeah. and over and over again. I mean, it's just like silly and dumb. And yet I never get sick of it. So maybe, I don't know if you consider a guilty pleasure, a movie that's just silly. So that would be one of them. I watch a lot of uh, like John Hughes movies when Harry met Sally. That's mm -hmm. not a, that's not a guilty pleasure. That's just like one of the greatest movies <laughs> ever. Um, but I do, I, I find that I do watch comedies probably more than anything or action. Yep. I really love action. So I find, uh, you know, diehard type movies where, there's a lot of uh, chasing and, and things blowing up. I tend to like that. <laughs> Thank you so much for letting me interview you today. You very much. So that's my interview with Amy. I want to thank Amy for joining me. And I also want to remind you, you can get 10% off at filmmaker.com using the code, the cutting room, all one word. Now this podcast wouldn't be possible without our team behind it. Our producer, Jason Banky and our sound designer and editor, and mixer, Evan Winch. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.